NBC newsroom in New York. President Trump said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. We will interrupt all programs to give you latest news bulletins. Stay tuned to this station. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today, a rare story from the not-too-distant past. The opening weeks and months of America's involvement in World War II. In December 1941, after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and Germany declared war on the U.S. on the European front, it was a clever and deadly move by the Axis powers to shock and intimidate the United States, which suddenly had to look at the fact that they were now forced to fight an all-out war on two huge fronts, which covered most of the world. In the tense and frantic days that followed the Pearl Harbor attack in December of 1941, many Americans, especially those in western coastal states, believed that enemy raids on the continental United States were imminent. After all, our American naval base at Pearl Harbor had been attacked. Our bases in the Philippines and elsewhere in the Pacific were being bombed, with Japanese forces coming ashore, killing and taking prisoners. And the American mainland, with its thousands of miles of coastlines, especially in the west where it bordered the Pacific Ocean, had to have been a tempting target. There was a very understandable climate of fear and suspicion of all things Japanese. The attacks on Pearl Harbor and elsewhere were surprise attacks, done without any provocation, and meant to destroy American military power. Largely because the United States did not come to the aid of Europe when Hitler attacked in 1939, Japan felt the United States and its people were weak with a corrupt culture and that they were a sleeping giant with no taste for war, and might even surrender if their naval forces could be destroyed in one fell swoop. That opinion would change radically when the sleeping giant awoke and took on war on two fronts, outproducing, outsmarting, and outfighting the well-entrenched Axis forces everywhere on the globe. On December 9, 1941, eight days after Pearl Harbor, unsubstantiated reports of approaching aircraft had caused a minor invasion panic in New York City and sent stock prices tumbling. On the West Coast, Inexperienced pilots and radar men had mistaken fishing boats, logs, and even whales for Japanese warships and submarines. Tensions were running high, and they only grew after U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson warned that American cities should be prepared to accept occasional blows from enemy forces. Ladies and gentlemen, a special announcement. The entire regular personnel of the sheriff and police office has been placed on a two-platoon basis with 12-hour shift. All auxiliary personnel has been directed to stand by for emergency service instructions. The regular county defense program is functioning in an orderly manner, and citizens are urged to remain calm and avoid all unnecessary confusion because of hysteria. Citizen volunteers are asked to go quietly to their nearest police or fire stations and offer their services if they wish to help. There is no immediate cause for alarm, and coolness will accomplish more than anything else. We return you now to Hollywood. In Seattle, Washington, home to Boeing aircraft, as well as all along the northwest coast of the U.S., blackouts were ordered each night at 11 p.m., 
to protect coastal cities from bombing, and their harbors and passing merchant ships from being spotted by Japanese subs. No car headlights, no lights from homes or businesses were allowed. Radio stations were ordered silent at night. Roundups of Japanese Americans had begun. Radio news reports were sketchy, but most news was bad. The Japanese had attacked Guam and the Philippines. American aircraft carriers and battleships were still on fire at Pearl Harbor, and counts of thousands of Americans killed were filling the reports. Go ahead, Honolulu. Uh, several planes have been shot down, and anti-aircraft gunnery is very heavy. All lines of communication seem to be down between the various army posts. Everyone here on the islands were taken by surprise by the attack, and even yet it's difficult for some people to believe that our air raid on these beautiful islands has actually happened and that lives have been lost. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, several squadrons of Japanese planes came in from the south, dropping bombs and incendiary bombs over the city. One bomb dropped in front of the governor's mansion. Traffic is almost at a standstill. At Pearl Harbor, three ships were attacked. The Oklahoma was set afire. There is great activity there now in clearing the debris. The governor has proclaimed a state of emergency. The army has issued orders for all people, the civilian population, to remain off the streets. After machine gunning Fort Island, the first Japanese planes moved to Hickam Field. There were 350 men killed in a direct bomb hit on the barracks at Hickam Field. A bulletin from New York. The Japanese took over the American Shanghai Power and Light Company this morning. This news came hours after the bombing of Honolulu. This is the National Broadcasting Company. There was no wall-to-wall news coverage like we have today. All people could get was sketchy pieces of news. No one knew exactly how bad it was. In Seattle, a mob of 2,000 people gathered at 4th Avenue and Pine Street at night while a 19-year-old Navy wife named Ethel Chelsvig screamed that not everyone was turning their lights out, telling them that her husband was in the Navy and everyone wasn't doing their part to protect their city. She then threw something into a huge plate glass store window, broke it, and then screamed. The crowd turned into a mob. Twenty-six more windows were broken and a dozen neon signs. And then, strangely enough, they started singing God Bless America, as they destroyed their own city's storefronts. Meanwhile, the blackouts were producing car accidents. On one night, 10 people were injured. A 20-year-old man suffered a critical head injury after his 23-year-old friend drove him straight into a bulkhead on Alaskan Way. The police rounded Ethel up in Seattle, and the next day a judge fined her $25 for inciting a riot. Fear brings out the worst in people. It makes them crazy. And some people still ask me why our government won't admit that, yes, extraterrestrials exist and have visited us. All you have to do is look back at Seattle and Los Angeles in December of 1941. All along the West Coast, people were hiring cement contractors to build air raid bunkers and to fortify parts of their homes. Defense contractors, like Boeing, were running 24-hour shifts. Anyone with a business that stood to profit off the panic was doing pretty well. Furniture stores selling blackout blinds were doing gangbusters. Other businesses, like bars, were having to close down at 11 p.m. 
the world was turned upside down. The Japanese Americans in Seattle tried to allay the fears that were gathering around them and toward them. On December 24th, for example, 1,300 of them flowed into the adjacent gym of a newly dedicated Buddhist church there and pledged their allegiance to the United States. In Juneau, residents were told to cover their windows for the nightly blackout after rumors of Japanese submarines lurking by the southeast Alaskan coast began to spread. Rumors also spread of a Japanese aircraft carrier cruising off the coast of the San Francisco Bay, resulting in the city of Oakland having to close their schools and issue a blackout warning. Civil defense sirens provided from Oakland Police Department cars blared through the area, and radio silence was ordered. In Seattle, the city also imposed a blackout of all buildings and vehicles, and the owners who left the lights on in their buildings would soon pay the price. Rumors were so bad that 500 United States Army troops moved into the Walt Disney Studios lot in Burbank, California, to defend the famed Hollywood facility and nearby factories against enemy sabotage or air attacks. If Mickey or Donald could have manned anti-aircraft guns, they would have. But it is fitting to say that their characters both adorned the outer shells of many bombers headed for enemy manufacturing centers in Germany and Japan as the war progressed. As the United States began mobilizing for total war, anti-aircraft guns were set up, bunkers were built, and air raid precautions were drilled into the populace all over the country. Several merchant ships were attacked by Japanese submarines in the U.S. coastal waters of the West Coast, especially during the last half of the month of December 1941 through February of 1942. Many West Coast residents believed that the Japanese were going to storm their beaches at any minute. And, as it turned out, less than four months later, Japan did bomb Dutch Harbor in Unalaska, Alaska, and landed troops in the Aleutian Islands of Kiska and Attu. They killed non-combat missionaries and also took prisoners who were shipped back to Japan for forced labor. On February 23, 1942, a Japanese submarine surfaced off the coast of Santa Barbara, California, and hurled over a dozen artillery shells at an oil field and refinery. The Steven Spielberg film 1941 was loosely based upon that incident and the panic that ensued after Pearl Harbor. The bombardment of Elwood near Santa Barbara during World War II was a naval attack by a Japanese submarine against the United States coastal targets, which included oil refineries. So if you ever caught up in a local bar bet wagering on whether or not the Japanese bombarded mainland USA during World War II, now you know which side to bet on. And my hunch is you'll be in the winning minority. That event was a key in, in triggering the West Coast invasion scare and influenced the decision to intern Japanese Americans. And that's a big story in itself. Tens of thousands of Japanese Americans were removed from their homes and put in internment camps in four or five western states. It was not a happy time for them. The event also marked the first shelling of the North American mainland during the conflict. The Elwood bombardment also marked the first shelling of the North American mainland during the conflict. The story of that Elwood attack. Following the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, seven Japanese submarines were given the mission to patrol the American West Coast. German subs were already creating havoc on our East Coast. The Japanese subs sank two merchant ships and damaged six more, skirmishing twice with U.S. Navy air and sea forces. 
By the end of December 1941, the Japanese submarines had all returned to friendly waters to resupply. However, several had gone to Kwajalein and would pay a return visit to American waters. One of these was the Imperial Japanese Navy submarine I-17. The I-17 displaced 3,654 long tons when submerged and was 365 feet long, about one and one-fifth football fields. Her armament included six 510-millimeter torpedo tubes and 17 torpedoes, plus a 14-centimeter deck gun. She carried 101 officers and men, captained by Commander Kozo Nishino. This was no mini-sub. It was a big boy, and it could do some serious damage. The Japanese government, concerned about President Roosevelt's radio speech scheduled for February 23, 1942, ordered a Japanese submarine to shell the California coast on that same day. And when you think about it, they not only knew when the speech was going to take place, they probably knew what the contents of the speech were. It shows that there was a serious need for concern regarding the spy network the Japanese had already set up within our government. A naval reserve officer, the Japanese subcommander Nishino had commanded a pre-war merchant ship that sailed through the Santa Barbara Channel, so he had experience on that coast. His ship had once stopped at the Elwood oil field to take on a cargo of oil. At about 1900, which was 7 p.m., on February 23, 1942, the I-17 came to a stop opposite the Elwood field and rose up out of the water. Nishino then ordered his deck gun cleared for action. Its crew took aim at a Richfield aviation fuel tank just beyond the beach. The Japanese opened fire about 15 minutes later, and the first rounds landed near a storage facility. The oil field's workmen had mostly returned home, but a skeleton crew on duty heard the rounds hit. They took it to be an internal explosion, until one man spotted the I-17 against the skyline in the distance. An oiler named G. Brown later told reporters that the enemy submarine looked so big to him he thought it was a cruiser or a destroyer, until he realized that just one gun was firing. Nishino soon ordered his men to aim at the second storage tank. Brown and the others called the police as the Japanese shells continued to fall all around them. Firing in the dark on a submarine buffeted by waves, it was inevitable that many rounds would miss their target. One round passed over Wheeler's Inn, whose owner Lawrence Wheeler promptly called the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office. A deputy sheriff assured him that warplanes were already on their way, but none ever arrived. The Japanese shells destroyed a derrick and a pump house, while the Elwood Pier and a catwalk suffered minor damage. After 20 minutes, the gunners seized fire and the submarine sailed away. Estimates of the number of explosive shells fired ranged from a minimum of 12 to as many as 25. Even though he caused only light damage, Nishino had achieved his greater purpose, which was to spread fear and anger along the American West Coast. And it certainly did that. Reverend Arthur Basham of Montecito called the police to claim he had seen the enemy submarine from his home. He said the I-17 turned south towards Los Angeles, apparently flashing signal lights to someone on the shore. But in reality, the I-17 had sailed west, returning to Japan in safety. The reports of Nishino's attack caused hundreds to flee inland. 
Many feared that the event was a prelude to a full-scale attack on the west coast of the United States. Since several people in Santa Barbara claimed to have seen signal lights, a blackout was ordered for the rest of the night. The baseless claims of signals were used to justify Franklin D. Roosevelt's controversial internment of Japanese Americans, which began just one week later. Japanese submarines continued to conduct occasional attacks against Allied shipping off the U.S. coast during the rest of the war. Sent to American waters in hopes of targeting warships, the submarines managed to sink only a handful of merchant ships, besides conducting a few minor attacks on shore targets. These consisted of a bombardment of Fort Stevens on the Columbia River, an attack on a Canadian lighthouse on Vancouver Island, and two air raids launched from a submarine in an attempt to start forest fires in southwest Oregon. One night after the Elwood attack, the Battle of Los Angeles took place. In response to claimed sightings of enemy aircraft, anti-aircraft batteries opened fire all across the city, causing panic among its residents. The day after the oil field raid, paranoia and itchy trigger fingers combined to produce one of the most unusual home front incidents of the war. It began on the evening of February 24, 1942, when naval intelligence instructed units on the California coast to steel themselves for a potential Japanese attack. A large number of flares and blinking lights were seen in the vicinity of defense plants. Everybody remained calm for the next few hours, but shortly after 2 a.m. on February 25th, military radar picked up what appeared to be an enemy contact some 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Air raid sirens sounded and a citywide blackout was put into effect. Within minutes, troops had manned anti-aircraft guns and begun sweeping the skies with searchlights. It was just after 3 a.m. in the morning when the shooting started. Following reports of an unidentified object in the skies, troops in Santa Monica unleashed a barrage of anti-aircraft and 50 caliber machine gun fire. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. Before long, many of the city's other coastal defense weapons had joined in. This is where you have to back up a little bit and try to imagine the people living in coastal California at that time and the fear and panic that the sound of all those shore guns must have caused. Some residents were throwing the kids and the family valuables into cars and heading inland to safety. Powerful searchlights from countless stations were scanning the sky with brilliant probing fingers, as the LA Times wrote, while anti-aircraft batteries dotted the heavens with beautiful, if sinister, orange bursts of shrapnel. Chaos reigned over the next several minutes. It appeared that Los Angeles was under attack, yet many of those who looked skyward saw nothing but smoke and the glare of ak-ak fire. Imagination could have easily disclosed many shapes in the sky in the midst of that weird symphony of noise and color. Coastal Artillery Corps John G. Murphy later wrote, but cold detachment disclosed no planes of any type in the sky, friendly or enemy. For others, however, the threat appeared to be very real. Reports poured in from across the city describing Japanese aircraft flying in formation, bombs falling, 
and enemy paratroopers jumping. There was even a claim of a Japanese plane crash landing in the streets of Hollywood. I could barely see the planes, but they were up there all right, a coastal artilleryman named Charles Patrick later wrote in a letter. I could see six planes, and shells were bursting all around them. Naturally, all us fellows were anxious to get our two cents worth in, and, when the command came, everybody cheered like a son of a gun. The barrage eventually continued for over an hour. By the time a final, all-clear order was given later that morning, Los Angeles artillery batteries had pumped over 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition into the sky. It was only in the light of day that the American military units made a puzzling discovery. There appeared to have been no enemy attack. Although reports are conflicting and every effort is being made to ascertain the facts, it is clear that no bombs were dropped and no planes were shot down, read a statement from the Army's Western Defense Command. Ironically, the only damage during the battle had come from friendly fire. Anti-aircraft shrapnel rained down across the city, shattering windows and ripping through buildings. One dud careened into a Long Beach golf course, and several residents had their home partially destroyed by three-inch artillery shells. While there were no serious injuries from the shootout, it was reported that at least five people had died as a result of heart attacks and car accidents that had occurred during the extended blackout. In a preview of the hysteria that would soon accompany the Japanese internment, authorities also arrested some 20 Japanese Americans for allegedly trying to signal the non-existent aircraft. Within hours at the end of the air raid, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox held a press conference saying the entire incident was a false alarm due to anxiety and war nerves. Knox's comments were followed by statements from the Army the next day that reflected General George C. Marshall's supposition that the incident might have been caused by enemy agents using commercial airplanes in a psychological warfare campaign to generate panic. Some contemporary press outlets suspected a cover-up. An editorial in the Long Beach Independent wrote, There is a mysterious reticence about the whole affair, and it appears that some form of censorship is trying to halt discussion on the matter. Speculation was rampant as to invading airplanes and their bases. Theories included a secret base in northern Mexico, as well as Japanese submarines stationed offshore with the capability of carrying and launching planes. Others speculated that the incident was either staged or exaggerated to give coastal defense industries an excuse to move further inland. Representative Leland Ford of Santa Monica called for a congressional investigation, saying... None of the explanations so far offered removed the episode from the category of complete mystification. This was either a practice raid or a raid to throw a scare into two million people, or a mistaken identity raid, or a raid to lay a political foundation to take away Southern California's war industries. The Japanese government, after the war ended, declared that they had flown no airplanes over Los Angeles during the war. Of course, they claimed a lot of things, too, including having nothing to do with Amelia Earhart. In 1983, the U.S. Office of Air Force History concluded that an analysis of the evidence points to meteorological balloons as the cause of the initial alarm. During the course of a fireside report to the nation delivered by President Roosevelt, the one we talked about earlier, a later study determined that probably much of the confusion had come from the fact that anti-aircraft shell bursts caught by the searchlights 
were themselves mistaken for enemy planes. In any case, those three hours produced some of the most imaginative reporting of the war. Swarms of planes, or sometimes balloons, of all possible sizes, numbering from one to several hundred, traveling at altitudes which ranged from a few thousand feet to more than 20,000 feet, and flying at speeds which were said to have varied from very slow to over 200 miles per hour, were observed to parade across the skies. These mysterious forces dropped no bombs, and despite the fact that 1,440 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition were directed against them, suffered zero losses. There were reports, to be sure, that four enemy planes had been shot down, and one was supposed to have landed in flames at a Hollywood intersection. Residents in a 40-mile arc along the coast watched from hills or rooftops as the play of guns and searchlights provided the first real drama of the war for citizens of the mainland. The dawn, which ended the shooting, and the fantasy, also proved that the only damage which resulted to the city was such as had been caused by the excitement, or by traffic accidents, or by shell fragments from the artillery barrage. Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox announced at a press conference the fourth airports reported its belief that there were no planes over Los Angeles. But interestingly enough, the Army didn't publish their initial conclusions immediately. Instead, they waited a full day, until after a thorough examination of witnesses had been finished. And on the basis of those hearings, local Army commanders altered their verdict and indicated a belief that from one to five unidentified airplanes had been over Los Angeles. Secretary Stimson announced the conclusion as the War Department version of the incident, and he advanced two theories to account for the mysterious craft. Either they were commercial planes operated by an enemy from secret fields in California or Mexico, or they were light planes launched from the Japanese submarines. In either case, the enemy's purpose must have been to locate anti-aircraft defenses in the area, or to deliver a blow at civilian morale. That's not a bad theory, and it could have gone down that way. That divergence of views between the war and the Navy departments and the unsatisfying conjectures advanced by the Army to explain the affair touched off a vigorous public discussion. The L.A. Times, in a first-page editorial on the 26th of February, two days after the event, announced that the considerable public excitement and confusion caused by the alert, as well as its spectacular official accompaniments, demanded a careful explanation. Fears were expressed lest a few phony raids undermine the confidence of civilian volunteers in the aircraft warning service. Wendell Wilkie, speaking in Los Angeles on the 26th of February, assured Californians on the basis of his experiences in England that when a real air raid began, he said, you won't have to argue about it, you'll know. He conceded that military authorities had been correct and calling a precautionary alert, but deplored the lack of agreement between the Army and the Navy. A strong editorial in the Washington Post on the 27th of February called the handling of the Los Angeles episode a recipe for the jitters and censured the military authorities for what he called stubborn silence in the face of widespread uncertainty. The editorial suggested that the Army's theory that commercial planes might have caused the alert explains everything except where the planes came from, where they were going, and why no American planes were sent in pursuit of them. The New York Times on the 28th of February expressed a belief that the more the incident was studied, the more incredible it became. If the batteries were firing on nothing at all, 
as Secretary Knox implies. It is a sign of expensive incompetence and jitters. If the batteries were firing on real planes, some of them as low as 9,000 feet, as Secretary Stimson declares, why were they completely ineffective? In answer to that question, the theory was that they weren't dropping bombs. The whole purpose of them showing up and then disappearing was to get our coastal defenses to engage, to find out how many we had. He also asked why did no American planes go up to engage them, or even to identify them. One good reason there would be that they would have been shot out of the sky by our anti-aircraft batteries. So down with question two. What w- and he asked what would have happened if this had been a real air raid? These questions were appropriate, but for the War Department to have answered them in full frankness would have involved an even more complete revelation of the weaknesses of our air defenses. So it's understandable the War Department didn't answer those questions. At the end of the war, the Japanese stated that they did not send planes over the area at the time of this alert. Yeah. Although they did admit that submarine-launched aircraft were used over Seattle. A careful study of the evidence suggests that meteorological balloons known to have been released over Los Angeles, may well have caused the initial alarm. This theory is supported by the fact that anti-aircraft artillery units were officially criticized for having wasted ammunition on targets which moved too slowly to have been airplanes. After the firing started, careful observation was difficult because of drifting smoke from shell bursts. The acting commander of the anti-aircraft artillery brigade in the area testified that he had first been convinced that he had seen 15 planes in the air, but had quickly decided that he was seeing smoke. Competent correspondents like Ernie Pyle and Bill Henry witnessed the shooting and wrote that they were never able to make out an airplane. It is hard to see in any event what enemy purpose would have been served by an attack in which no bombs were dropped, unless perhaps, as Mr. Stimson suggested, the purpose had been reconnaissance. And there was a UFO angle, too, that was submitted. A photo published in the L.A. Times from that night has been cited by some ufologists and conspiracy theorists as part of evidence of an extraterrestrial visitation. They assert that the photo clearly shows searchlights focused on an alien spaceship. However, the photo was heavily modified by photo retouching prior to publication, a routine practice in graphic arts of the time intended to improve contrast in black-and-white photos. L.A. Times writer Larry Harnish noticed that the retouched photo, along with faked newspaper headlines, were presented as true historical material in trailers for the film Battle of Los Angeles. Harnish commented, If the publicity campaign wanted to establish UFO research as nothing but lies and fakery, it couldn't have done a better job. Well, it's likely that the Battle of Los Angeles was either a mirage or a Japanese test of our defense using balloons or maybe planes it was still a chilling reminder of the vulnerability that many Americans felt at the beginning of World War II. They were scared, and they had a right to be. The Japanese would later hatch several schemes to attack the American mainland, including launching over 9,000 explosives-laden fire balloons. Yet none of them ever produced the mass hysteria that accompanied the shootout over Los Angeles. Now, 9,000 explosives-laden balloons is nothing to sneeze at and it might have been a test of some of those balloons that became the target of our coastal defenses that night. It wasn't any joke to a group of people in Oregon. Three years later, in 1945, six of whom were killed by an exploding Japanese balloon bomb, becoming the only Americans to be killed by Japanese forces on American home soil. 
and was a few months before the atomic bomb was to decimate Hiroshima, and the United States and Japan were locked in the final stages of World War II. The U.S. had turned the tables and invaded Japan's outlying islands three years after Japan's invasion of the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor, and each island was falling at a high cost to Japanese defenders and American Marines as the Allies approached the Japanese mainland in an all-out effort to end the war. That probably seemed a world away to a Sunday school teacher, her minister husband, and five 13- and 14-year-old students near Klamath Falls, Oregon. Reverend Archie Mitchell was driving the group along a mountainous road on the way to a Saturday afternoon picnic. According to the Mail Tribune, a southern Oregon newspaper, teacher Elise Mitchell, who was pregnant, became sick. Her husband pulled the sedan over. He began speaking to a construction crew about fishing conditions, and his wife and the students momentarily walked away. They were about a hundred yards from the car when she shouted back, "'Look what I found, dear!' the Mail Tribune reported. One of the road crew workers, Richard Barnhouse, said, "'There was a terrible explosion. Twigs flew through the air, pine needles began to fall, dead branches and dust, and dead logs even went up.' The minister and the road crew ran to the scene. The young students, Jay Gifford, Edward Engen, Sherman Shoemaker, Dick Patsky, and their teacher were all dead, strewn around the one-foot-deep hole. The teacher's dress was ablaze. Dick Patsky's sister Joan was severely injured and died minutes later, the Mail Tribune wrote. The six were victims of Japan's so-called Fugu, or fire balloon campaign. Carried aloft by 19,000 cubic feet of hydrogen and borne eastward by the jet stream, those balloons were designed to travel across the Pacific to North America, where they would drop incendiary devices or anti-personnel explosives. They were made of rubberized silk or paper, and each balloon was about 33 feet across. Barometer-operated valves released hydrogen if the balloon gained too much altitude, or dropped sandbags if it flew too low. In all, the Japanese released an estimated 9,000 of them. At least 342 reached the United States and some drifted as far in as Nebraska. Some were shot down. Some caused minor damage when they landed, but no injuries. One hit a power line and temporarily blacked out the nuclear weapons plant at Hanford, Washington. But the only known casualties from the 9,000 balloons and the only combat deaths from any cause on the U.S. mainland were those five kids and their Sunday school teacher going to a picnic. Getting back to the Battle of Los Angeles, every February, the Fort MacArthur Museum, located at the entrance to Los Angeles Harbor, hosts an entertainment event called the Great L.A. Air Raid of 1942. And here's a recording of some of the entertainment that was found at one of those reenactments. Greetings. Welcome to our civilian guests. You are now at Fort MacArthur, San Pedro, California. This coastal defense fortification protects Los Angeles Harbor and this sector of the West Coast against enemy attack. President Roosevelt has declared a state of war due to the December 7th sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. Strict security measures are now in place. We know the enemy is listening. So to you war workers and relatives of servicemen, do not discuss troop movements, production schedules, or types of training. 
This is a military installation, not an amusement park. You will conduct yourselves accordingly. As you know, the current military situation is grim, but it will not prevent your enjoyment of tonight's event. Welcome to Fort MacArthur. Hello, my name is Jackie and I'm with the USO. We hope you enjoyed this episode at 1001 Heroes, and we encourage you to listen to our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. All great listening and great entertainment and found wherever great podcasts are found. Here are some recent reviews for 1001 Heroes. Starting with five stars, a national treasure that enriches seekers of truth. This podcast is the real deal, the standard by which all should be measured. One, content. Beautifully written deep dives into some of the most compelling topics that history has to offer. Two, listenability. John Hagedorn is at the pinnacle of delivery. The cadence and inflections combined with character provide believability, authority, and wisdom that I trust. Three, honesty. Unfiltered truth. Remember what that sounds like? Subscribe to this podcast for a reminder. Wow. That one from The Wizard, 929, Apple Podcast, U.S. And glad I found this podcast. Five stars. Just found this podcast, and it looks like it'll be one of my favorites. Thank you. That one from Pumpkinhead, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, the best, five stars. At last, I found this podcast. Stories are just perfect full of interesting, varied stories about great people and great happenings. Thank you. That one from B. Hatio, Apple Podcast, Australia. And this one, very informative and interesting, five stars. Excellent podcast for the history buff. That one from Texas Jack, Apple Podcasts, U.S. And this one, awesome storyteller, five stars. Have listened to every episode of all three 1001 podcasts. Just love all of them. Never turn my car radio on anymore. Waiting for next episode. Keep up the good work. That one from 12OC3112 Apple Podcast US. And this one, five stars. ERP. Good choice in having shows about the Old West. That one from Market Pop, Apple Podcast US. 
Thank you all so very much for taking the time to write these reviews. They really help us, and they help fans to get a good opinion of us. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everybody, stay safe, and please do tell a friend. Thank you. credit card bill.